0: Welcome to the Don't Overthink This podcast, where we explore and connect ideas without overthinking it. I'm Brian Heath. And I'm Ross Jackson. Dr. Jackson does a lot of continual growth and talk about AI, in particular chat GPT and what it's capable of doing or not capable of doing. So I was curious what your perspective is and if there's any place where the audience could read said opinion about what you think about it. (laughs) There is. I, I just had a,
1: a an opinion piece on uh, chatbot and its implications for education, management, and humanity in uh, Cxo Tech Magazine, and my my thoughts on it is that AI is coming. And it will change the way that people learn and the way that people work. But that the, the fear that we have about it is similar to the fears and concerns that we've had with other technological advancements. And eventually, AI and chatbot will be integrated into just simply the way that we learn and work, and that uh, there's still the capacity for human creativity and human critique and that you know basically we may just be outsourcing initial drafts and that humans then will edit computer-generated drafts of reports as opposed to human-created drafts of reports
0: so what's your thinking on it there's always the thought of you know technology automating and taking jobs away and so for a long time it was Like the skilled laborer, you know, the carpenter or whatever, and the house builder could be replaced by assembly line and manufacturing and that sort of stuff. And that happened. And then you continue to go down the the path of like technology sort of replacing jobs. And then but the latest sort of element has been the sort of knowledge worker uh, activities where the thought was, well, there's really no risk you have there that your job will be maybe supplanted by automation or something like that. But I do think that now we're starting to see with these uh, AI bots that can be, can generate fairly good content that if your job is primarily to generate this sort of early draft sort of content and there's not a lot of deep scrutiny to it, I think now all those knowledge worker jobs are at risk. And so I imagine there'll be a lot of hand wringing and uh, uh, a lot of, concern about it. And I think we're already seeing a lot of like schools trying to outlaw it and all that sort of stuff.
1: Well, I think, you know, I mean, I think that perhaps ultimately it's a positive step if if that's true, that the, you know, the, uh, the notion of displacing a significant proportion of uh, the educated white collar um, may give a significant group of people that have been relatively immune from the negative sides of capitalism to confront those things. So so perhaps this is the push that will uh, create greater solidarity between management and labor and show the way that uh, both groups are precarious and that some sort of advancement from capitalism is required to make it more just and, and more pleasant in society. So maybe, you know, maybe that push is is ultimately a good thing
0: yeah, I think there's a good elements in there of that push of maybe making change. Although when I reflect upon my like white collar work, the thing I'm most annoyed about is like all the meetings. And so I want to know when there's the meeting bot. I can just take my place. <laughs> but you know this this all gets to a, a question that I
1: think you you posed in one of your blog posts this week. and what is what is the return on investment associated with thinking
0: yeah i, I have no clue i have no idea <laughs> i have literally no idea but i but i can tell you how to come up with something depending upon who's asking the question so well, let's the, start let's start with i'm asking the question all right all right. so you're asking the question of what's the return on investment of thinking in which case i could just tell you i have no idea and that's fine like that that's i think we're in the same sort of mindset that It's a really challenging thing to put put a value to. And there's a lot of reasons why that's challenging to put a value to. It's thinking good. It's thinking bad. You know, there's all kinds of value judgments you have to make when you start placing monetary elements on calculations for ROI, especially as it relates to thinking and analysis. But I'll say that if someone is asking you for like the ROI on analytics, that the intent is you believe to just eliminate your job then there's nothing you can do nothing you can do there's no calculation you can come up with that's going to save your job it's just they've already made the call and you know you might be able to string it along a little bit longer but ultimately it's like do you really want to put up with that for that long either they're a believer or they're not a believer okay they're not and you can come up with all the calculations in the world to you know say it saves billions of dollars and all sorts of things but if they just want to eliminate it then it's fine you know just let it go but if they're looking to sort of justify your existence and or expand the capability of analysis, uh, then you know you can go through some of the calculations. But I recommend being highly conservative and not being the biggest expense on the on the line item of any sort of budget whatsoever.
1: So I'm interested. Do you do you think that the converse of the situation is equally true, or or do you think that people? Um, use information differently depending on the context. So for instance, you indicated that if, if somebody has made up the negative conclusion that it doesn't add value, no amount of analysis will get them off that position. Do you think that an analysis can persuade people to be for analysis? Yeah, or are, great... they, are they also already pre-committed to the notion before they see the case for it?
0: I mean, I think innately people have a, a decision in their head about what they think about something. I think very rarely are people coming in truly without some positions. Um, some people are probably more open and not. But I guess if I had to pick a ch- choice, I would say if someone's in their head, hey, it's no, it adds no value. I don't know if there's much you can do to ever convince them um, through a direct analysis approach, right? Because they've already decided that that's the way that it's no good. So by doing more of that, how are you going to convince them that oh well they already disagree disagree with the approach to why doing more of it be if you want to convince them that maybe it does I think you have to take a completely different like perpendicular angle to the to attack them it has to be something like maybe go get a beer and talk about whatever with them that has nothing to do with analysis you know try to help make them uh, like you uh, (laughs) in some capacity. And then maybe slowly through other sort of um means of building a trust as a human uh, maybe you can get there that of course means that you're willing to spend time drinking a beer with them or doing whatever with them to to kind of go down that path but i don't think you can use anal- analysis to convince someone who doesn't believe in analysis that analysis is good what are so, your thoughts so, well
1: just just so i think that i am connecting the dots that you put forward your position is that in order for me to get somebody to like me I have to get them pretty drunk.
0: Well yeah, I mean that I'm pretty sure that's how that's how we started. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make sure I just wanted to make sure I understood it correctly. Well, so, I think mostly it's about the sort of the, the social lubricant of connecting on I think it's about position power removal situation and trying to just be I think you've talked about this in some of your posts about having uh you know having dinner um and having a chat and that creates an opportunity to be more peer and in human-to-human interaction. I think that's a path to that's perpendicular to the peer analysis path. Yeah I, I think I I I'll add
1: what I think is a distinct addition to your position. I, I agree um with your with your premise that once somebody's mind is made up, no amount of analysis tends to move them from the position that they think is the correct one but but i will add that within organizations having a well-developed rigorous and coherent position for or against can can change the internal risk associated with taking the position that they assert that is contrary to the well-documented case so to, to me it's it might not be that they are persuaded but it may change the calculus of the decision in that if if they do something contrary to what the report suggests then they are personally Held accountable for the decision in a way that's that's perhaps different. I don't think it's persuasive, but it could be rhetorically significant.
0: In in sort of that vein of alternative ways of getting people to get into analysis. So, one of your posts, you mentioned that uh, an analyst, you know, should in, in inform the decision. And are they betraying the profession if they do more than inform?
1: Yeah, I mean that that is, I, I think one of the major cruxes of applied analytics it is that, you know, to, to one degree, I think that the person doing the analysis is required to be objective. And, you know, sort of like the the dragnet, just the facts um, and present the information and, and often a, a decision or a consequence is certainly uh, implied by the facts but i also think that you know after working with the 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 data and working with the topic for you know some period of time the analyst does become knowledgeable in in a way that is in addition to the objective understanding that that there is some sort of position that gets often asserted and that perhaps it's it's more authentic and and more honest to present the information and then also declare what what you think the implication for action is so i i think that and that's a subjective um position that one one comes to based on the understanding and the analysis so um i i will say that i am conflicted about the role of analysis as it comes to that
0: what what's your thoughts on it there's definitely the challenge and in viewpoint that hey, you're supposed to be like objective in your analysis and provide and inform and then let someone else sort of make the decision. But as you start doing that, I think it's almost impossible as a human to not form an opinion or not form a perspective. And you can either try to balance that out by laying out like twenty options that try to like obscure your your choice, <laughs> you know, like you're trying to, or you sort of lean in and say, we did this work and then this is the direction we think. My experience has been that you go further if you form an opinion, like in in business at least. That's what I think most managers and leaders are looking for from analysts is like that opinion, once they trust you. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I still think you can go and create an opinion and piss everyone off along the way. But I think as you sort of build the relationship, I think it actually is more critical probably to form an opinion than maybe any other technical capability. Once you've established that you have that baseline, like you think well, you run things well, you you provide a clear perspective, you can show your work, you do it effectively. But then everyone always just tells me like, I want the insights, tell me insights, tell me something I don't know. It's like, well, I don't know how to do that unless I tell you what I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a wonderful two word question that I, I think is often maligned because it, it can be aggressively passive aggressive but but the question is actually an excellent question and the and the question is so what? And, and I think you know people can do a lot of analysis and a lot of groovy things with algorithms and come up with answers to questions. Um, but at the end, one should always be able to answer the question so what you know what what does it mean what does it mean for us as an organization what should we do informed by this perspective and and i think that analysts are uniquely positioned to at least offer an initial answer to the question of so what so so i i'm interested you know because we could instead of asking each other these questions right we we could just do a google search and i'm wondering have you become the head internet searcher of your organization and what do you think a head
0: internet searcher is responsible for yes I think I in many ways in many parts of my organizations and many that I'm a member of whether that's family or work or whatever I become the head Google searcher and essentially I just think it means that I know how to ask the right kind of question to get an answer and understanding how the, you know, how the Google engine works to find something and the ability to explore stuff. But at the same time, it can be a bit of a drag, especially in organizations where someone could just take the two minutes to query something on their own and get the answer. And instead they come ask you for that. And so it's very easy, and I've run into a lot of analysts who get sort of annoyed by this because they don't, they they think it's, you know, these other people could easily go off and get the same answer. And they think in like a few minutes, that's the assumption that they could get the same result if they just did it themselves. And it's really a waste of the analyst's time. And so you you can take that perspective and, and in some ways agree with it. The alternative is, hey, at least they're asking you for something. So at least there's some value there. And then you just have to accept that, like, maybe something about your ability to, ask questions or to query systems or to work or understand that data gives you some insight and efficiency that maybe they don't have to be able to find things, or maybe they're just lazy. So what about you? are you the head Google searcher? Well, I, I am not. Uh, I, I don't tend to uh, use
1: technology very much at all. So I, I tend to avoid it. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things that you can uh, ask the Google is about potential jobs. And in cashing in by cashing out, you indicated that one could make 50% more by changing employers every two years. So I think for me, one of the things that I'm interested in is, does that mean that you plan to cash out and that I'll be looking for a new podcast co-host in about two years?
0: Well, considering all the hundreds of millions of dollars we're making off of this, I definitely think we're at episode 17, you know, so we're getting close to the one year. So you got another 26-ish episodes before I cash out, and I'm pretty sure that 50% 50% more of zero is is still zero, but we'll see. Maybe we'll make a buck and then it'll be time to cash out and get somewhere else. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. If we're, if we're going to make
1: all the way up to a dollar on this, I may <laughs> not replace the co-host so I can get uh, that
0: that whole dollar to myself. <laughs> I don't think you're at risk uh, of that being the reason that, that we decide to stop the podcast. It may be eventually that we just get tired of talking to each other. But well, no, I'll just take you to a bar and get you drunk. Yeah, again. well, this, well, this, yeah, we'll reestablish the, the the connection as humans. In in fact, maybe we should just record the podcast at a bar. Yeah, I mean, I think what time? I think what time we should try to do that, and people can hear what that's all about. And we'll have to edit out most of it because <laughs> we're talking, you know, crap about other people or whatever. <laughs>
1: Or or we're getting pummeled because we're talking about analytics in a bar. Yeah,
0: yeah. Either either way. Yeah. I think the the idea on the the changing jobs every two years is, you know, I think there's recent studies that show that people who do, you know, make 50% more than those people who don't. But yet if you just generally are aware of what is being propagated out there in the management sphere and the business sphere. Everyone in that space is highly concerned with keeping employees from leaving. And that's the reason why, because they make a lot more when they leave. So it's sort of this seems completely, you know, in our traditional sort of way, it just seems completely backwards and shallow to say, well, if we keep them here, you know, we'll save money. But in the end, you end up paying new people more. So why so if you like someone who's doing a good job for you, why don't you just pay them more up front? I guess what are your thoughts on why people don't make that logical connection? Well, it's easy
1: because in the aggregate more people stay than leave. So, you know, it's you you can't you can't use probabilities to to predict what any one person will do, but you can you can certainly use them to understand what people in mass do and an organization is much better off trying to convince people to stay for less than what they're worth and on average out of a sense of allegiance or identity or just the sort of seductive nature of what's comfortable more people will stay than leave but it's it's only I mean ultimately you will you will lose uh the people who are the most savvy because they understand the situation as it is and they understand the the truth behind the rhetoric of trying to convince people to stay and they'll move every two years and make at, at the end of a career significantly more than the people who stayed
0: yeah it just continues to be I 100 percent hear what you're saying and I understand this continues to boggle my mind that why don't more people do this or why don't organizations understand that there's this there's sort of like the the base cost calculation of like hey more people are going to stay but like you said the savvy individuals who are probably the ones who also are probably more let's just say higher performing let's just say because they can at least they can convince someone else that they're high performing right so if no no other measure other than them convincing other people that they are so if we assume that they are you know you eventually just have folks who just your organization will just be full of folks for the most part that are not your your top performers you'll just
1: let them all leave which I think could then explain why many people experience organizations that seem to be languishing and uh lack uh dynamic progress right that that they're they may be limping along and performing passably well but they're certainly not excelling and the people may be passively content with the way things are but they're not inspired um, I, I think that yeah, you get you get a pool of people who are satisfying. They're not
0: trying to optimize. What's the most American thing you can do? <laughs> uh, leave your company to make as much money as possible to maximize your market potential, or stay at a company because you're loyal and and you're trying to do it all together. Well, Dr. Heath, uh, one of my favorite logical fallacies is the logical fallacy
1: of false dichotomy. And uh, clearly in this case, the most American thing to do is neither of those, but to go out there and create jobs, because there's nothing more American than being a job creator. And then making sure people don't leave those jobs and pay them as little as possible. And then exploit those people (laughs) to the maximum extent possible, while simultaneously cutting any ability
0: for uh, national welfare. (laughs) Speaking of dichotomies, one of your articles uh, gets into depth versus speed. I wonder if you could explain a little bit of what you thought there around how analysts are mostly focusing maybe on depth versus speed and which is more valuable. Well,
1: I'll start with you know I I don't know I don't know that a case can be made as to which is more valuable. Um, I'll I'll say which one tends to be more accessible and pervasive. So, you know, for instance, you you referenced at the beginning, the sort of opinion article that I wrote on AI. And I I think within two days of posting it to LinkedIn, I have about 1,400 people who have seen this article. And that's just through my LinkedIn profile. So people probably have found it through CXO Tech Magazine and, and other sources as well. And, I, and I'm 100% that that's within two days. And in the sort of 15 years since the publication of my dissertation, my guess is that maybe 20 people have read that. Um, I, I spent uh, you know maybe two days writing the the opinion piece. Um, and it's been available for two days. I spent probably a year and a half writing uh, 250 pages in my dissertation, and I, you know, I think that that sort of situates the the depth and speed uh, separation, and and certainly things that are speedy both in their creation are timely, right? They're they're relevant to what's going on now, and things that are speedy in terms of their consumption is, is something that people in our distracted society, have enough time to consume and and to think about and move on. So I I think that depth is certainly valuable, and, and when it's needed, there is no substitute for it. But I think speed has its own quality, and often analysts put too much time into perfection when a quicker solution would be more impactful. What, what's your experience?
0: Well, I think there's certainly, you know, how many people read dissertations and stuff, uh, you know, if it's beyond, I would say 99% of the time, if it's beyond the faculty members who are uh, assessing whether you get your PhD or not, then, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's fantastic for you. Congratulations. Like more than, or I'll also extend it to like your immediate family who has no idea what you're doing, but they say they read it, you know, I'll extend it to that uh, group as well. So I think there's that element of it. And then there's also like the speed and how quickly other pieces can get out. And I do think that for the most part, analysts probably spend a little bit too much time on like the perfection and depth of getting like all the statistical tests right and all these sorts of things that they've sort of been trained to do, where sometimes a quick answer is is the most effective. But I think I'm wondering from your article that got a lot more references that you did in like two days or a lot more reads in two days than you spent years doing on your dissertation. Could you? have achieved that level of speed without having spent all that time in that depth for that year and a half so,
1: so right i mean you know there's a there's a fluency that comes from slugging it out and, and you know you become more proficient uh, certainly the the blog post that you and i write has uh really enhanced the the skill of of writing in in short duration and and having sort of a digestible coherence to what gets produced um yeah I mean I think I think it's important to maybe wander through the forest of depth for a while in order to cultivate the ability to work quickly but I but I think there so that's on the positive side on on the negative side I think that analysts pursue depth in part because they, they, they dread making their results public. They don't want to brief uh, the the decision makers. And however they can convince themselves to spend more time reading one more article or doing what one if uh, one other what if scenario that every chance they have to, to go deeper or take longer, they, they tend to
0: have a, a bias towards doing that. I think there's this idea of maybe coming from young, you know, early education days of like there being a right and a wrong answer. And so when you're, it's easy to become paralyzed by that and be focused on, well, is your analysis right or wrong? And I think that's an opportunity to, that maybe some people can use to break out of the, out of that cycle.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that there's, you know, the, the issue is you can always go deeper if you feel like you need to be prepared to articulate what was done and why you know every step of the way then ask well why this and you have to get, dig deeper and you know at some point you just, you you eventually are like well assume this is true right so it's it's just the you know how how many layers down are you going to be able to articulate what was done and why And, you know, where do you snap the chalk line and and say, look, let's assume everything behind this point and let's move forward.
0: The snapping chalk line is a good, a good like analogy that has to happen. And I think when you talk about depth versus speed, I think it's largely like an illusion. I don't think they really, I don't think there's really a difference. I don't think people actually, I don't think there is in terms of like, if you were to assess some sort of understanding of like quality or outcome, what I, you know, the difference between like speed and depth, I think it's largely so relative and so hard to do. It's like asking, what's the ROI of thinking? I think it gets into that realm of like, well, I don't know what what any of that means because what allows me to be fast now is like 30 years of training, but maybe how deep is our understanding? I think when you start, for those people listening to like have gotten their PhD or done extensive research in something, you realize how deep and how endless the hole is and how little you actually end up knowing. So that your depth is like, like sh- shallow compared to the whole depth of what is understood collectively. I,
1: I think we can both agree that my depth is shallow. <laughs> and rather than the calculating the ROI of thinking, I think I'm gonna spend the uh, afternoon contemplating the ROI of cashing out. And, and
0: maybe the ROI of getting a beer with someone that, that, that you appreciate or you're trying to influence to come on to, you, to your side. Which reminds me, uh, Dr. Heath, do you wanna go grab a beer? Yeah, sounds great. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you like more of this content, please feel free to join us over at don'toverthinkthis.net where we have multiple blog posts a day and we'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks.